Lord in heaven, we thank you for uh, your marvelous deeds. We thank you that we get to uh, marvel at it and unpack it. We pray that you would show us the wonders of your mercy, that you would unpack for us what it means to be a part of your covenant, what it means to be uh, one with Christ. We ask that you would guide us in these topics and that, above all, we would come to know you and that we would become more like Jesus as you transform our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, We'll do a little bit of review because it's been a couple weeks since we've done Covenant Theology again. Uh, And just to remind you where we're at, we are almost at the end. So that means we have talked about Covenant Theology for, I think, five or six months or something like that. Um, We started all the way back uh, in September, and we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of things, right? We've talked about a lot of different covenants. We've talked about covenants in general, um, about how we do covenants all the time, whether it's marriage or you sign a lease or you are a citizen of of a country. These are all covenants, right? There's blessings for doing your part for, you know, if you pay your your lease on time, you get to keep your house. And there's curses if you don't keep your end of the bargain, right? If you don't pay your your mortgage, you lose your house. If you uh, defect to another country, you become a traitor to your citizen, uh, to to your country. If you you know, cheat on your spouse, you've broken the marriage covenant. Um, so we do covenants all the time. But how the Lord does covenants is He set up the world to work through covenants. In fact, you can't have a relationship with God apart from being in covenant with Him. Uh, so we talked about how <clears throat> in the beginning God created man and woman, and He created them in covenant. And if you remember, the, the stipulations, the here's the conditions of the covenant. Do this and live. And the do this was, you know, to extend dominion over the whole earth. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Be fruitful and multiply. <clears throat> These are all part of the covenant stipulations. And then the curse was, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. So there's a blessing and there's a curse. Reward for obedience. Uh, curse for disobedience. And Adam and Eve failed, right? They disobeyed, so they earned the curse. And all of their descendants were cursed because Adam was representing them as their covenant head. So that means that the guy in charge of of fulfilling the obligations, whatever happens to him, happens to everybody he's representing. So we talk about this as a mediator. A covenant mediator represents the whole. Um, So in Adam, Paul says, we've all died. Through the one man's disobedience, death came to all. Um, So we need a new way out, right? If we're to survive, if we're to have life, if we're to uh, actually get back to the purpose for which we were created, which was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, God has to do something. Something has to change. A new covenant has to come into place, and that's what God did. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent shall have enmity, and the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Now, this was not something that Adam and Eve had to fulfill. Right? There weren't conditions that they had to do. It was just a promise of what was going to happen. And the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would come. He would do what Adam failed to do, but it would be costly. And so throughout the rest of history, as you look at how the Lord interacts with his people and with the world, we see him creating new covenants, other kinds of covenants. We saw how the covenant in Genesis 3.15, this promise, was expanded. Right? You think about um, the Abrahamic promises, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic. 
All of these covenants are building, showing and expanding that original covenant of grace that he made in Genesis. So everything that comes afterwards is just what we call an administration of the covenant of grace, which means it's expanding upon and showing even more so what the Lord is doing, what his covenant purpose is. But it's all pointing to the fact that God is doing something for us. And it's not plan B. Right? God had made a covenant before he even created Adam and Eve. A Trinitarian covenant. A covenant where Jesus promised to, here's what I will do. And God said, the Father said, here's the reward I will give you when you fulfill the obligations. And what Jesus agreed to do, right, the Son of God, he agreed to become a human, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise into glory, and that the elect, the people of God, the elect chosen by the Father, they are his reward. They are given to Jesus as a reward for his obedience. Um, that means that we as the elect, we get brought into what Jesus does. That what Jesus does on the cross, he does for the elect. But how we come into this, right, is through the Spirit, through his working. Because the Spirit is also part of this covenant where he promises to apply the benefits of Christ's work, which Jesus did on the cross, to the elect. We call that regeneration, right? When the Spirit moves and gives someone a new heart, gives them faith, gives them uh, the ability to, to believe in Jesus. And through faith we're saved. And this faith is a gift, Ephesians says. <clears throat> so, now we come into the new covenant. Right? This new covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace that was began in Genesis 3.15. And... We call it the New Covenant for a couple reasons. Why do we call it the New Covenant? The first, obviously, being that that's what Jesus referred to it as, right? This is the blood of the New Covenant. But what is, what is the New Covenant? What's new about it? Why do we call it new? Is God doing something fundamentally different? Yeah, Jonathan? Okay, first covenant, covenant of works, second covenant of grace. And you're thinking maybe back to Genesis, right? Yeah, Genesis 1 is Genesis grace. Okay. That's true, but the new covenant is especially called the new covenant, even though it's an administration of the covenant of grace. So is God doing something fundamentally new in the new covenant? Does God do anything in the new covenant that he hasn't already done in the past? He's putting his spirit in our hearts. Okay. He's putting his spirit in our hearts. <clears throat> what do you guys think? Maybe, maybe let's step back a little bit. What is the new covenant new in relation to? What's the old covenant? Sergi? Well, the old covenant was between God and man, but God put Jesus as our mediator in the new covenant. True. But we're talking about a covenant in history at a particular time, and there was a covenant that came right before it that Paul refers to as the old covenant, or Hebrews even. Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. Yeah, yeah. The new covenant is new <clears throat> in relationship to the Mosaic covenant. 
So what that means is that the Mosaic Covenant, when it ends, when it breaks, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. So Jeremiah 31. And this new covenant will be unbreakable. What came with Moses was breakable. It had a a temporary purpose. um, But this new covenant is unbreakable and has an eternal purpose. So again, I, let's, let's then pitch the question. Is God doing something fundamentally new in the new covenant? No. Why, why do you say no? Because it's, it's a continuation of the covenant of grace. I mean, it's different than the Mosaic covenant. It's different than the covenant of works. But it is, it is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And therefore, the, you know, from, from Genesis 3.15, all who, who believe in that coming seed will be saved. Yeah. Nothing changed there. Yeah. Nailed it. Whoever believes in the coming seed will be saved. That has never changed. So this is contrary to dispensationalists who say that the new covenant, God is doing something fundamentally new, like substantially. The substance of the covenant is different than what came before, according to dispensationalists. In other words, the church today is plan B and Israel is plan A. Israel failed. The Mosaic Covenant failed. So God pivoted and said, okay, in this dispensation, we're going to do things differently. So that's the dispensationalist. We say, no, the fundamental substance of the covenant has not changed. God isn't doing anything fundamentally new, but he is distinct. He's doing the same things, but in in a way that we haven't really seen him do to this extent or to this level or this way before. God has always been walking with his people. Right? The Son of God has always been speaking to his people. But now he's enfleshed. Right? He is he is present not just through theophanies or through visions or through a, a pillar of fire and cloud. Now he's present as a as a human person with a body. Right? That's new. It's distinct. But it's not He's not doing anything fundamentally different. He's always been walking with his people. He's always been speaking to his people. Just now, he's doing it in a way that is much more beautiful and glorious. And it's the fulfillment of everything that came before. The new covenant fulfills everything that came before. So Jesus can say, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to wipe away Moses as though it never happened. I came to fulfill the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was talking about me, not the other way around, if that makes sense. Well, the Old Testament also said that, do this and you shall live. Christ said, I will do this on your behalf. That's true. Yeah, the Mosaic Covenant was, was a teaching tool, in a sense, where the Lord said, Here's, let's, let's play salvation out on a small scale. Let's pretend, you know, that if you could obey, I would give you the rewards. But instead of doing it for eternal salvation, let's just do it with the land and see if you can do the land. And if you can keep the land by your obedience, then we'll talk about salvation. Then we'll talk about eternal things. Well, of course, five minutes later, Israel builds the golden calves and the tablets are destroyed. The covenant's broken. Moses says, don't blot them out. Blot me out. God says, let's, let's try again. And then Israel breaks it, they reinstitute it. Israel breaks it, God shows grace. Over and over and over again, to teach Israel, you can't do this. No matter how well-intentioned you are, you're going to fail. Only Jesus 
can do this. Only Jesus can keep the law perfectly. Only he can earn eternal salvation. Uh, yeah, Jonathan. It's like when they're training the astronauts for space flight, you know, the Apollo astronauts, they put them in a simulator to uh, that simulated all the movements. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Yeah, like maybe in the spinny thing. Like if you don't bark in the spinny thing, then you'll be fine to go to space. But Israel barked. Sure. Something like that. Um, okay. So the new covenant, it's not plan B. God's not doing anything fundamentally different. Um, and this is the eternal final covenant. So we're not looking for something more. We're not saying to ourselves, man, this covenant's it's pretty good, but I can't wait until you know, God makes a new covenant with us. Or I can't wait until things are, are different and we finally have you know, the fulfillment of everything we're looking forward to. That's in a sense true, but we have right now the substance that we're looking forward to. Um, this is something that we, we don't often talk about, um, but the new covenant shows us new creation. Right? We're all looking forward to heaven. We're all looking forward to when Jesus returns because then everything will be made new. Right? We'll, we'll be in heaven. We'll taste of new creational realities for real. Um, but the truth is that we're already doing that. We're already participating in new creation. That's what happens every, every Sunday when you come to church. Church is where heaven and earth are at their closest. Like the worship service on Sunday, this is where heaven and earth are, are at their closest because it says that we are ascending Mount Zion. We're being brought into God's presence. We're tasting of heavenly realities. It's like a Costco sample. It's pretty good, but it makes you want to eat the whole bag. Well, we, don't, we can't have the bag yet, but we can have the Costco samples, which are pretty good. Um, it's not a great analogy. Don't, don't read into it too much. Um, but all of the benefits that we're looking forward to, all of the things that we, that we want... As, as Christians, we already have right? regeneration, justification, adoption, the Spirit of God dwelling within you. All of these are already yours through the work of Jesus Christ, uh, to which you have access by faith, not by works. Uh, but as we look in the next today and, and next week, there's a couple of things that I want us to consider. Um, the first is that even though we taste of all the heavenly realities, even though we have everything that we're looking forward to, we're not in heaven yet, which means that we have to do something with the reality that not everybody who, who claims Jesus Christ actually belongs to Jesus Christ. So the first problem we have to deal with is, is not everyone who professes faith actually believes. There are people in the church who, who claim Jesus Christ, who, who claim to be Christians, who live even lives that look pretty good from the outside, um, but who don't have faith. Pharisees. Pharisees would be an example, yeah. But we have to find some way to deal with that, covenantally. What does it mean that someone could be in the church, right, a member of the church, and yet not a believer? Um, so we have to deal with that issue. And the second thing that we have to deal with is, is where do our kids fit in? 
what does it mean that the promise is for you and your children? How do our kids fit into the covenant, into the new covenant, into church? What does that mean? Um, and, and how does that affect how we raise them? So those are the two things that I want to get to. So hopefully today we'll get to the question of what do we do with the fact that not everybody who professes faith is a, is a believer. And next week we'll talk about how our kids fit in. And these, these are interconnected, so we'll, we'll see the same themes. Um, but the main problem that I'm, I want to address today is that there are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ who are not true believers. And we know this. Not just from practical experience. We know it from practical experience. Um, Our church especially, we know it from practical experience. But this is from Scripture too. So Jesus says in in Mark 2, or sorry, Mark 4, he tells this parable of the seed that's sown. Right, The sower, he sows the seed on, on all these different places. And where the seed falls on rocky ground... It falls, and it's, it doesn't take root, it doesn't sprout, it doesn't produce any fruit. But the seed shown on shallow ground, it springs up immediately, right? It, it, it flourishes, it looks really great on the outside, um, but its roots are shallow. And so when persecution comes, the seeds, they, they die and they wither and they fall away. And then there's seeds that are sown among thorns. And while they try to spring up, the thorns choke out the life of the seed and crush it and obliterate it. But the seed that is sown on good soil, it springs up and it produces fruit. Some 30-fold, some 50-fold, some 100-fold. And so Jesus explains this parable. He says that the seed sown, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And that when the seed is sown on rocky ground, it means that it falls upon deaf ears. That the gospel is preached to to hard hearts that the seed can't take root because the hearts are hard. And so nothing happens. But the seed that is sown in shallow soil, it springs up initially. Right? The good news is received initially with joy, uh, with thanksgiving, even with, with zeal. But when persecution comes, on account of the word, they fall away. And this is, he's referring to people who hear the gospel and initially respond with joy. But when things get hard, the cost of following Jesus proves too much. And so they fall away. And he says that there are seed that's sown among thorns, but it's choked out by, by the deceit of riches. And the cares of the world. What Jesus is saying is that there are some who will receive the word of God, but they will be they will be distracted. They'll be turned away either by the devil or by their own desires leading them astray. The cares of the world, the seat of riches, that these things will be will take root in their hearts and choke out the gospel. But for some, the seed will be sown on good soil, and it will spring up and it will bear fruit. And in some people, that fruit will be small, and some it will be medium, some it will be large. But the fact, the, the point is not, okay, how much fruit do you have? The point is that the Lord is producing fruit in you. That the Lord is, has put his word in your heart, and it has taken root and producing fruit. And that's, that is a beautiful thing, and that's what we hope for and pray for. But even in this parable, Jesus is saying that there will be some who who seem to receive the word of God initially. But whether it's through persecution or through the cares of the world, they will fall away. And then he says in Matthew 7, Jesus is is talking about the the last day. 
and he's giving this, this image of what it's going to be like for all of, all of the world, all the humans in the world to stand before him. And some will say to Jesus, well, well Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, that last day, when Jesus returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a scary passage. That makes me scared. Um, that Jesus could look at someone who professed faith in Jesus who even did things in Jesus' name, mighty works, casting out demons, prophesying, and yet Jesus will say, I never knew you. You claimed me, but I do not claim you. So that tells us that there will be people in the church who claim Jesus Christ, but who are not known by Jesus. I think of Judas. Here's a man who's followed Jesus been a disciple, sat under his teaching, and even partook of the, of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on that last day with Jesus. He took the supper and then left and betrayed Jesus. How do we, how do we make sense of this covenantally? How can we make sense of the fact that somebody can profess faith, attend church, participate in the sacraments, and generally speaking, even be a, a, a decent person? but then who falls away or is rejected by Jesus on the last day. It seems to me that there's a few options, a few ways that we could make sense of this um, covenantally. Because remember, we're talking about the covenant. We're talking about the covenant of grace and what it means to be in the covenant of grace uh, and to be a member of that. So one of the options um, is that the covenant of grace and the new covenant is for the saved, but they could then leave the covenant either by apostasy or excommunication. So, think of the Baptists. The only way to actually become a member of a church in a Baptist church is you have to profess faith. Right? They don't include children. They don't baptize them. They dedicate them, which is the same thing, um, but they don't baptize them. So what they're, they're saying is the covenant of grace is only for the, for the saved. It's only for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, um, not our kids. But what this excludes is all the promises God makes. Why are children in the Old Testament given the sign of covenant inclusion, circumcision? Not when they're old enough to profess faith, but when they're eight days old. I don't know about you, but when I was eight days old, I couldn't profess nothing. I could scream, and that was about it. Why do we baptize? The sign of covenant inclusion. Do we just do that? Because it's a fun little thing, but we don't actually mean anything by it. Yeah, we baptize, but nothing is actually, it doesn't signify anything real. And the problem is, if you take this to its logical extreme, what you'll then say is, if you're in the covenant of grace, that means you're saved because you professed faith. But if you leave then afterwards, if someone leaves, either by apostasy or unbelief, excommunication, they fall away because of persecution or the cares of the world, did they just lose their salvation? 
And that's what the Lutherans will teach, is that you can actually lose your salvation, according to the Lutherans. Roman Catholics do the same thing, but they have a little bit different take on it. So this is the option two. How do we make sense of this? Um, If you're in the covenant of grace, you're saved. Full stop, right? If you're in the covenant of grace, which means for the Roman Catholics, if you're in the church of Rome, you are saved. You're good. Now, obviously, you can fall away by mortal sins. But as long as you're in the church, as long as you do the right things, you do your Hail Marys, um, and you do your, I don't know, your stuff, um, you're good. You're saved. And if Jesus returns on the last day, whoever is part of that church, whoever is part of the Roman Catholic Church, even if you know, they don't have faith in here, but they're okay out here externally, they're saved. Which means that if you leave the church you're ex- or excommunicated, you're not saved anymore. You lost it. Okay, now a third option. So first option, the covenant of grace is only for those who profess faith, which excludes kids. But that doesn't make any sense of the promises that God gives and the fact that God includes children in the covenant. Second option, if you're in the covenant, you're automatically saved, no matter who you are. Um, that's Roman Catholics. Third option is that a person is only truly a member of the covenant of grace if they have true faith, and someone who falls away by apostasy or excommunication was never actually a member of the covenant. So, in other words, you could be part of the covenant, like, externally, but not actually in the covenant. It just looks like it, but you're not actually part of the covenant of grace. Um, which means that if you fall away by apostasy, unbelief, excommunication, whatever it is, you've never actually been a member of the covenant. And this is, there are a few churches, reformed churches, who take this option, right? That you're only actually a member of the covenant of grace if you have faith. And if you fall away, it means you never actually were a member of the covenant. Charlie? I think uh, a scriptural example So here's, here's the problem with this option. And you're, you're hidden on some good things. I think you're right. You're talking about Paul and Romans, and I want to talk about that passage too. But here's the problem with this option. We can't actually say our children are members of the covenant because we, we can't claim them to be elect. If the covenant of grace is only for the elect, only for those who have faith... Right? And faith is only given to the elect. That means that our children are like, they're members of the covenant. 
But there's a big old asterisk there that says they're members of the covenant so long as they're elect. So we can't actually say our kids are members of the covenant. Should we say in the same sense that Israel would say our children are members of the Mosaic covenant? Right. Like visibly? Not just visibly. None of us are called to, we don't know the secret things, the secret decree, that's the Lord's. If he doesn't give that to us, we're, we're supposed to operate on visible, public, sincere professions of faith until those are by unrepentant, persistent sin shown to be otherwise. And so, so this is a uh, this is an interesting question. Then, like, yes, could you elaborate more? Then, like, how can we say because we baptize our children, that does put them in the visible covenant, even though we don't like we would still pray for them, not knowing whether they have received faith yet or not, or or will ever do so. Right. Yeah. So this is this is the thing that we're hidden at. Um, God says our children are members of the covenant. And as members, they're to be given the sign of, of covenant membership, baptism or circumcision. Um, so there's two options. One is that that doesn't mean anything really, that that's just a, a, a nice outward sign, but it doesn't actually include them in the covenant unless they're elect. The other option is that when God baptizes, when he brings our children into the covenant, he's really bringing them into the covenant. That they're actually members of the covenant. But just because you're in the covenant doesn't mean you're saved. Not all Israel is Israel. What's Paul talking about? He says you can be in the covenant with God, really, and not know him. And not be saved. And so he says in, in uh, I think it's Romans 2 or 7 or 9, 12. Um, <laughs> I forgot my Bible. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. It's in there. Um, but he says, he's, he's lamenting. Paul's lamenting the fact that his brothers, his fellow Israelites, to them belong the promises. To them belong the, the, the signs and the seals and the promises and all the things that God gave to them. It belongs to them, but they're not actually saved. And he's like, I wish that I could die so that they could live. Because the problem is, just because you're in the covenant, it's not enough. That's presumption. To say, because I'm in, I'm in the covenant community, because I'm a member of a church, because I, I have all the outward things, that means that I'm good before God. Well, now you're Roman Catholic. Instead, we can, we can actually say our, our children are members of the covenant because God calls them members, because he gives them the sign of covenant inclusion. But we don't know that they're saved yet until we see the fruits. And even then, right, we can't know the heart. Only God knows the heart. Because it's, it's never been enough to be part of the visible covenant community, to be part of the covenant. Because Paul says... Who are Abraham's true offspring? Those who are descended from him? Or those who have belief in the promises like him? Those are the true offspring. Those are the elect. And so this is the distinction that we're getting at. We're getting at the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. And it's tempting, right, to kind of think of this as like, it looks like it, but it could not be. And this is the real... Well, that's not the best way to talk about it. 
But basically, the visible church is the covenant community. That God has made his covenant with believers and their children. That's the visible church. But the invisible church is the elect. And they're saved because what covenant came before the covenant of grace? Anybody? Okay, before that. Before creation. Matthew. Matthew, you answered a question. You never talk here. Good job. I'm so proud of you. I'll never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the covenant of redemption. Salvation, right, comes not as a result of our works. It doesn't come as a result of us being in the right covenant. Salvation comes to us because Jesus died for you. And because we're Calvinists, right, we believe in the limited atonement. Jesus died for the elect by virtue of the covenant of redemption. Because that's when Jesus promised, I'm going to die for the sins of the elect, and I'm going to save them. And I will not lose a single one. Which means that you can be in the covenant of grace. You can be part of a church, a true church, a member. You could be Israel. But unless you have faith, that doesn't mean you're saved. So covenantally, we're, we're wrestling with the fact that it's not enough to just be in the covenant. You have to respond to it in faith. It's not enough to be a member of a church. You have to have faith. You have to believe. It's not enough to be in the right family. Right? You could be, you could be a, a son, a true son of a dad. And that means that you are an inheritor. Right? If the dad dies, you get the promises. You get all the inheritance. But if you respond to your dad right, by slapping him in the face, calling him a bunch of names, storming out, and saying, don't talk to me ever again, you've forfeited the inheritance. So what this means is that we, we stress that being a member of a church is not enough. You aren't saved just because you took membership vows. You're saved by faith in Christ, by faith in the promises. Um, and so that affects right, how we view our lives. We don't get complacent. We don't think that we're good just because we're in the right church. We have to, be, we have to believe in Jesus. And that's going to affect how we view our kids. We view them as members of the covenant. We don't view them as external. We don't view them as though they belong to the world. And neither do we view them as though, yeah, they they might belong to the church. They might be members of the covenant. No, we believe they actually are. But we don't presume their election. We don't presume that they have, that they're saved. But we treat them as members of the covenant. We raise them as such, but we also call them to profess faith. We also call them to have faith in Jesus. So I can, I can truly say to Solo, like, Jesus loves you. He's your God, and you are his. Believe in him. Right, I can say both of those things. I can call him to belief, and I can tell him that the Lord is his, and that he belongs to the Lord. He's part of the church. He's, part of the, he's a member of the covenant. He doesn't belong to the world. He's not a seed of the devil. And there are some, like Jonathan Edwards, who, who said that children of believers are little vipers. 
that they're not actually members of the covenant, right? They're little reprobates, and we have to save our kids, right? We have to evangelize them and, and yell at them and make sure that they believe. Um, and in a sense, we do have to tell our kids, right, to believe in Jesus. We do have to call them to believe um, and to live lives honoring of God. But we don't raise them as though they're outside. We raise them as though they're inside. Because the promise is for you and your children. Does that make sense? Does that help show us how this makes sense covenantally, that someone can be in the church, profess faith, and yet not be saved? Uh, I've seen Charlie and Jonathan, so I'll go to Charlie first. Did you have something to add? A minute ago, I was was thinking that, like, Scripture is also clear that, like, to even to us, but you're speaking especially of our children, we think of of, uh, uh, training them in the covenant life that they are in, uh, that the things that they receive actually bear witness against them should they reject them in time. So it's not that, like, oh, it wasn't, like, you actually live in in the most light that you can receive in any covenant administration because the the substance of Jesus has come, right, and you've received it if you've grown up in covenant communities like churches like this, and that which you've received, you will be held accountable for. And so it'll be hot coals on your own head should you reject them and reject your God. Hebrews, Hebrews puts it like, if, if you have tasted of these things and yet rejected them, it's as if you've crucified Jesus again. It's as if you've, you've stomped on him. It's pretty, pretty rough. Um, Jonathan. So going back to what we said earlier about people being on the outside, you know, like children being baptized or circumcised, and yet still not members of the faith. That reminded me of something that I saw in a book that I have back in my house. If, if, if your PC is plugged, quote unquote, if your PC is plugged into the power outlet, that doesn't mean that you're automatically connected to the internet. You also need software. Sure. Now, like, if your child is baptized or circumcised, that doesn't mean that they're immediately part of the covenant. You, they also need faith. Well, we would say that they're part of the covenant. But we would also say that they, they need faith, personal faith in Jesus Christ. Not necessarily the heavenly Sure. Yeah. Because they could still go to the world. Like, I heard somewhere that most Christians who go to a government college or some kind of not classical Christian college, or at least this is what I heard from the video about a college that I was thinking about. Most Christian kids go to a government college, or at least a not Christian college, will end up leaving the faith during the there. Yeah, sometimes. And part of that might be that it's not stressed often enough that you belong to the church. Right? You you are in the covenant. And that includes, right, how you live. Um, okay, but we'll talk about a lot of that stuff next week, too. We'll talk more about our children. But just for today, are there any other questions about covenant membership? Michelle. I have kind of a clarified. I'm thinking of a person who was not raised in the church, comes to faith. They show up at our door 
they go through the membership class and, and it meet with the session, they would receive the sign of baptism on the day that they professed faith and, and became members, right? Yeah. Because they go together in that way if they right. never baptized. Right. Okay. Yeah, because baptism is the sign of covenant inclusion. Charlie? So in the article that your father wrote, he talked about the kingdom of God being, there being a distinction between it being inaugurated and then it being fulfilled, like completed. Sure. Is that also a fair way of understanding the visible, invisible church that the, 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 the visible church is the mixed covenant? The invisible is that which will be finished at the end of time, and Christ is working in history right now, bringing the visible church into conformity with that invisible heavenly reality. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah, you could you could think of it like um, when Israel came out of Exodus, right? There was a mixed multitude. Right. Um, Egyptians in there too. Yeah. So the analogy, right, is that today the church is a mixed multitude. There are believers and there are unbelievers in the church. On the last day, Jesus will separate them. So the parable that he tells, right, of the seed that's sown in the field, but uh, a bad guy, you know, Satan, comes in and plants weeds, right? He sows weeds. And the angels say, well, should we just get all the weeds out right now? And he says, no. Wait till the last day, then gather it all, then take the wheat, put it in my barn, throw the weeds in the fire. So the last day is when that will happen. Is when the, the, the church will be separated between those who are true elect, and those who aren't, and, you know, they'll go to their respective places. So, I, I don't say any of this to make us all doubt our salvation. Um, I say all of this partly to, as a comfort, because this means that our children are included in the covenant, that there are blessings and privileges that they have, that if you didn't grow up a Christian, those are immense blessings. And if you grew up a Christian, right, it's easy to take that for granted. If you grew up in the church, it's easy to take that for granted. Um, but remember that salvation comes not through our works, not through the things that we do. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what we proclaim. We proclaim the gospel. Repent and believe. Because that's what you need at, at the beginning of your Christian walk. That's what you need in the middle of your Christian walk. That's what you need at the end of your Christian walk. You need the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's what we hammer every week because that's what matters. Okay, if there's any more questions or you want to talk more about this, I'm available. Um, I'm still working through all this too, so I'm, I'm teaching as best I can and what I know. But these are really good questions and things that we should keep thinking about and talking about because um, they matter. They affect us. Uh, but I hope you, you're starting to see how covenant theology is. This is real life, right? We're not talking about big theological concepts out there. We're talking about our church and our lives and our families and, and what this means for us. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to keep talking or any questions you have. But right now, let's pray. Ask God to prepare us as we prepare to come uh, into his presence for worship. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your grace. We thank you that you have made your covenant with us and with our children, that you have brought many people to you to know you. Father, we pray that you would work your gospel in all of us, that you would continue to drive us back to what it means that we are saved by faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast, not by our, our good works, not by uh, our status in a church. We are saved because we believe in Jesus, and even that faith is a gift.
Lord, give us this gift. Increase all of our faith. Draw us towards you. As we worship you, pray that you would draw us near and that we would all be transformed, heart, mind, and body, to be more like Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.